Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Thank you for coming. Beginning of spring. Again. <laughs> So tonight I want to talk about, uh, together, about this line, um, which I think actually divides the Heart Sutra from this first phase of negation, um, that all forms are characterized by emptiness. And again, just to to sum up maybe, um, that any form has the characteristic of emptiness. What that means is um, that emptiness can't exist in its own right, and neither can a form. So a form has the character of emptiness in the same way that fire has a characteristic of heat, has a character of heat. You can't separate the heat and the fire. You can't separate a form and emptiness. And one of the nice things about this way of understanding emptiness is that emptiness can't be reified, it can't be turned into a thing. And I think we do this with emptiness a lot, where, I don't know about you, but when I first heard this term emptiness, I thought of it as a kind of, it often gets translated as void, you know, that it was like some place that you can get to where the world just kind of empties out like a vacuum. But also to understand shunyata as fullness, as boundlessness, that because of interdependence, Everything is so full of everything else that it's boundless. There are no boundaries. And precisely because of that, there are boundaries. You see? So that a form has the characteristic of emptiness. If we didn't have the form, there would be no point in talking about emptiness as a characteristic. How is that practical? It's good, really good dialectic, negative dialectics. How is it practical is that what arises in awareness, so your favorite commentaries, all of the forms of clinging that arise in awareness, those forms are actually empty of substantiality. You see? So you invest in them, and the more you invest in them, the more you make them real. And whenever you turn what's arising into an object, you also create... Best punchline. 
always works. No. <laughs> well, because we don't know. Is it a self or is it a suffering? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it's the same, right? Whenever you create that separateness, you get dukkha. So dukkha is the gap between what's actually arising and our self-imagination. Or it's the gap between what's occurring in life and time. Our construction of time and space around it. So that we create separateness. Protect ourselves. Okay, so that's the first part summed up. As a transition to the second phase now of the Heart Sutra, where instead of speaking only in terms of negation, um, the um, Heart Sutra begins talking about what it means to practice as a bodhisattva. What it means to practice as somebody that's concerned with the freedom of relational life. Which the uh, wonderful French feminist philosopher Luce Arigiri calls... um, horizontal transcendence. So as opposed to thinking of transcendence as vertical, there's me going up, to recognize that transcendence actually can happen horizontally. How can I secure my freedom if you are not free? How can I be enlightened if you're suffering? Because if there's interdependence and form is empty because of it, then if you're in pain, I'm in pain. One body. One body. So, there's a reworking of the notion of enlightenment, not as something that I achieve or I attain, but rather as something that's emergent. It's something that emerges in a more kind of liquefied existence rather than this vertical notion of me getting up and out of here, off the wheel, off the wheel. Whether, whether it's this lifetime or next lifetime. But actually it's because of the quality of our relatedness that I secure your freedom through our intimacy. And I can only do that um, by releasing my attachment to attainment, to trying to secure something for me. Does this make make a little bit of sense? No? Please ask questions if there's something not. Can you talk a little bit? Can you explain just a little bit more the last bit? So releasing, trying to attain something? Yeah. So the line here is, um, no gain no path, no wisdom, no gain. No gain, thus, the bodhisattva lives prajnaparamita. No gain, thus, the bodhisattva lives prajnaparamita. Red Pine translate this. <clears throat> Therefore, Shariputra, without attainment, bodhisattvas take refuge in prajnaparamita. Take refuge in Prajnaparamita. So, the background of this is that traditionally in Buddhist 
practice, we take refuge in uh, the three treasures. The Buddha, which is the awakened state, your heart. What's the second treasure? Dharma. Dharma, the teaching of the Buddha, which also refers to just the natural law of how things are. And the third treasure? Sangha, this community of practitioners. We take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Right? That's at the core of Buddhist teaching. But here, um, the Heart Sutra suggests that actually what you take refuge in, what, what the Bodhisattva takes refuge in, is not Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It's Prajnaparamita. It's Prajnaparamita. And then there's a definition of what Prajnaparamita is, which is living without walls of the mind. Living without walls of the mind. What do you take refuge in? Living without walls of the mind. And you come to see that the walls that are created in the mind are self-constructed. The Buddha offers a teaching that's very similar to this, where he says, if the sun comes in through the window from the south, it's going to land on the north wall. And if the sun came in from the east, it's going to land on the west wall. And if the sun comes in from the west, it's going to land so on. The sun comes in from the north, it's going to land on the south wall. <clears throat> Obvious. Well, what if you didn't have walls? I like to think of this as creating in the mind, body, heart a no landing zone. So whichever way the sun comes in, you're not giving it a place to land. Okay? So blame arises, anger arises, fear arises, and there's feeling. There's feeling that experience but without allowing it a place to land where it will then grow roots and, flo- and, and flourish. If you give it the right conditions, blame really flourishes, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. So without attainment... <clears throat> um, Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching, right at the beginning of the Tao Te Ching, writes... Those who seek learning gain every day. Those who seek the way lose every day. Those who seek learning gain every day. Those who seek the way lose every day. So what's the relationship between gaining and walls of the mind? Imagine the walls are like IKEA shelving units, you know? (laughs) And so whatever you perceive, you just take it and you put it into your favorite category. And each part of it, and they have like these amazing, better than the Lee Valley ones, you know? They're like birch or whatever. And um, you just take whatever's being experienced and then you put it into a context and the context into a container the container onto your shelving unit, into your shelving unit. Put it away. 
And then we find that after a while we have this shelving unit that we call the mind and that eventually the purpose of the mind becomes to take whatever we're experiencing and to plug it into whatever categories that we have habitually constructed. And then we find that in our intimate relationships with our siblings, with our lovers, with our close friends, that intimacy is killed because of the efficiency of the shelving unit. You see? Because like all of those tracks are really well lubricated. You know, if you shop at Ikea, they have like bearings in them even. You know, I'm used to living in houses where it's like wood and you've got to jam it, you know. And now I'm living somewhere where the kitchen has this really nice ball-bearing uh, drawer. And I just love to open the drawer and close the drawer, you know, without getting slivers, you know. <clears throat> and there isn't even all that paper in it from the 40s. <clears throat> So living without walls of the mind, and then my favorite part of the Heart Sutra, uh, and so without fear. Without fear. And so without fear. Without fear. So that there's a direct relationship between needing to plug what's happening in our lives into a story, into an image, into a self-image, into a self-culture image, into a self-culture economic image, into a self-culture economic capitalist, non-vegetarian, fascist, totalitarian image. And every time we're unconsciously plugging our experience into these categories without seeing how that's happening. And meditation practice is just learning to work with that process backwards, slower, so you can watch how that's happening. So you can watch how the separation that we create in our lives, we're constructing. We're setting up for ourselves. And how, according to the Heart Sutra, this brings the end of fear. A life organized by fear. A life organized by fear. So that we're taking refuge um, in this. The Bodhisattva is taking refuge in this. Where else can you take refuge? I mean, if you look closely at Buddha, you're not taking refuge in Shakyamuni. You're taking refuge in Buddha. You're taking refuge in your Buddha nature, which is that quality we all have of waking up, the the potential we have of waking up, that part that even in the midst of failure and disappointment and emotional debt that there is still some place in you that's awake that's just glowing sometimes when I meditate I like to meditate on my Mac computer when it's sleeping and it has that 
amazing glow. And I grew up learning about these practices from my uncle, uh, Ian, who uh, died several years ago, who was schizophrenic, and he lived his whole life from when he was 15 years old until when he was about 54 uh, in a mental institution. And um, I used to go after school (coughs) and hang out with him. Back in the days when when you were in grade one, you could actually take the TTC alone. And uh, I would go hang out with him, and it was the most sane place in my life <laughs> at the time. I remember going into, this was 999 Queen Street, which now they call Cam H. Um, and I remember going in and just like feeling that everything was okay with the world. And um, they had the most advanced community organizing system which all had to do with cigarettes. So one person would go across the road, get the cigarettes, and in three minutes, everyone on the floor had a cigarette, and you could smoke at that time inside. And um, one of the things that I learned when I was small there was that when people were out of their mind, and people were out of their mind, that there was a way where you could keep talking to that little glowing Mac. Is there a name for that thing? Snoring. Snoring? Snoring. Does it have a name, though? It must have a name. Everything has a name. Okay, well, anyways. Um, If you can find out the name of that for next week, you get a free class pass to any (laughs) yoga studio you want in the city (laughs) that has class passes. Um, so the more you talk to the same part inside the insanity the more it would start to build the more it would start to glow and the more you could find some common ground and we can do this also in our own insanity at a, at a somatic level because even in the midst of tremendous anxiety, even in intense, intense panic, you can go to the breath and you can find in the breath some place where everything is okay. Some place where everything is okay. And to be able to learn how to trust in that, to take refuge in the arising sanity in the midst of the insanity is a very courageous but practical practice. That there's some glowing part of calmness even inside the craziness that you can all find. And the amazing thing that happens in meditation practice is that when you can find that over time you start to see that what you're so invested in as substantial and permanent in one moment, in a couple moments later, or a couple breaths later, is seen to be totally impermanent and empty of any mass. And how much freedom there is in that. To commit to taking refuge 
in this experience as it is. And maybe at first that might seem disappointing because things aren't turning out the way we want them to turn out. But then we see how exhausting it can be to try and get everything to turn out the way we want it to turn out. Have you ever tried to do this before? <laughs> Has anyone here ever tried to change somebody? <laughs> or waiting around for your family to change? <laughs> So that the barrier to stillness (coughs) are the constructions, the self-imaginings that you're responsible for. And that's one of the reasons why we practice. And so that your heart is like the mother of all Buddhas. Your, Your heart connection to what's actually going on in the way that life unfolds is Buddha nature is Dharma that is the Dharma and that is the Sangha the intimate community that's generated when you show up when you show up not these fancy ideas of intentional community but the community that actually arises spontaneously when the snow is nine feet high Mm -hmm. and you need to shovel You pop out of the lake and you're staring into the eyes of a loon. And if that's not Sangha, we need to reevaluate what we think of this community. For me, I, I feel strongest sense of community uh, up north. I spend summers uh, in northern Ontario um, living next to a very old and almost abandoned graveyard. And when I'm there, I feel with all of the people buried and all the bugs and worms and whatever, eating whatever is buried. I, I feel community there, stronger than anywhere. <clears throat> so where do you feel community? Where in your life do you feel this deeper sense of intimacy than your idea of intimacy. Where do you feel it? Is there a location maybe? Somewhere in the city where you feel that? A certain streetcar track? A certain overhead wire where there's one pigeon maybe that always hangs out? A certain tree in a certain neighborhood? And to take refuge there because there's no fear there because the the feeling of intimacy is effortless and to know that feeling to know that feeling of connectedness without effort to know that so that you can 
glow and grow that in your body, in your heart, in your breath. <clears throat> Little poem here by William Stafford. Uh, I love the title of this. You reading this, be ready. <laughs> How could you read that title and put it down? <laughs> you reading this, be ready. <clears throat> Starting here, what do you want to remember? How sunlight creeps along a shining floor? What scent of old wood hovers? What softened sound from outside fills the air? Will you ever bring a better gift for the world than the breathing respect you carry wherever you go right now? Are you waiting for time to show you some better thoughts? When you turn around, starting here, lift this new glimpse that you found. Carry into evening all that you want from today. This interval you spent reading or hearing this, keep it for your life. What can anyone give you greater than now? Starting here, right in this room, when you turn around. What can anyone give you greater than now? Starting here, right in this room, when you turn around. There's a great story of William Stafford where he, he would um, stand in front of his class and um, wait for questions. And apparently he used to wait sometimes for 30 minutes. Just sit there and wait until he knew what the questions were. Yeah. If any of you have ever heard Bernie Glassman give a Dharma talk, this is how he gives his Dharma talks. Is he does the question period first, but with no answers. So he'll go around to everyone in the room and find out what their question is. And then he'll give a talk. <laughs> to be in touch with what your questions are. Because that's going to form the path. The path going where? Nowhere. Exactly. So not your idea of your life right now, but actually your idea of your life right now. You want the best horse, but you're already riding her. You've got the finest horse, but you don't even see it. How much of our life goes by like this? <coughs> Not listening. And then the questions pop out, and we do whatever we can to find strategies. I'm really good at this. Find a strategy to kind of like answer the question, to get on to the next piece, <coughs> so that everything keeps up with the image I have. The, the momentum of the narrative, the anthology that I've been writing of my life. And everything has to fit into that somehow. Good luck. Good luck. It doesn't work like that. 
And so when we talk about freedom, we're talking about that moment where we're entangled in whatever we're entangled in. And that moment where we can come back to the breath. And in returning to the anchor point, in returning to the breath, which is present experience, whatever it is we were caught up in seems to self-liberate. It liberates itself. It seems to unfold and then pass away. That you didn't even have to liberate it. Because it's born, it's unfolding and and disappearing, dying, passing away. Yeah, so it's, it's arranging its own vanishing act as soon as you notice it. And in that experience of seeing that happen over and over and over again, we start to see that we can take refuge now in something other than the investment we have in those particularly naughty, naughty um, <laughs> knots. So one question can just be, what is my life like right now? Or what is life like right now? What is my life like right now? And you might see when you ask a question like that. So one way of asking this question in a really simplistic way is, what is this? What is this? Not to answer the question, but just to open up some inquiry. What is this? What is this? <clears throat> not your idea of what this is. Not, because most of us, we're, we live in, in order to mind. I'm doing this in order to do that. But how your life is right now, that is horizontal transcendence. That's imminence. Not trying to transcend anything. We're not trying to get beyond anything. And that's why the way that we hopefully practice meditation here in this room is um, as a physical practice. As a physical practice. To go so deep inside the movements of breathing that we break through what we think of as the breath. And there's just a spontaneous, effortless knowing of breathing. And we've arrived. The life is settled. Even with our practice, not turning that into a whole new self-image. It's a story of three monks and the first monk sees the moon um, being reflected in a pail of water and um, points at the moon and says, look, the moon reflected in a pail of water, like a good student. You know? And um, 
the student next to him says, that's not the moon, it's just a pail of water. And they start arguing with each other. So the teacher comes over and kicks the pail of water. Meanwhile, the moon is just hovering there in the background. Like this contemporary painting, modern painting, some of you might have seen of Mount Fuji with a bullet train going through. Bullet train flying past Mount Fuji. All the salary people inside. And in the background is just Mount Fuji. We're sitting here struggling with our mind, all of our problems, and meanwhile, all those amazing pine trees in Tamagami are just standing there, treeing. The river's rivering, and the sky right now, just skying. And like how helpful it is to be able to see both the dark side and the light side, the form and the formlessness, emptiness and form. And then to see that they're not separate things, that form is precisely empty, and what's empty is precisely form. Living without walls of mind and therefore without fear. When I am scared, when my life is dominated by fear, um, it's also dominated by an attachment to a particular story. I've contracted around a way that I need things to go. And usually that's projected into the future. And fear is helpful. A rabbit that doesn't have fear is a dead rabbit. So we need fear. But when our life becomes um, contracted because of what we do with the fear, identify with it, um, we're in trouble. We start building borders. We start doing homeland security. You can think about all of your customs officers, your internal customs officers. You meet people and like you check them out in this way, check them out in that way. You, s- you find a way to get their passport, all their history. I do this when I meet people. The first time I go to someone's house when I just get to know them, first thing I do is I look at their bookshelf uh, and then their CD collection and decide if they're acceptable or not. (laughs) (laughs) Any thoughts or questions? Um, and then I was able to just um, 
like surrendering to it. Mm -hmm. feeling breathing and the breath starts getting softer and the mind gets calmer um, the distinction between in-breathing and out-breathing falls away yeah. and actually the mind and the breath work together like a gradual gradient so that the longer you focus on the breath the softer and softer the breath gets and then the softer the breath gets the quieter the mind and then as soon as the mind gets distracted, the breath gets coarse again. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to watch this. And it's good the breath gets coarse again. Because if it didn't get coarse again, there wouldn't be anything to find. Right? So immediately the breath gets coarse again. And then we mm -hmm. go to find that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And actually in yoga, uh, that's a technique that you're looking for. Patanjali talks about that. That uh, eventually, he says, the distinction between in-breathing and out-breathing falls away. And then one is no longer disturbed by a mind that turns things into opposites. I love that. Or Krishna says to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, once you can know the pranic and the panic pattern, that's the inhaling and exhaling pattern, then take the aponic pattern and pour it into the pranic pattern. Take the pranic pattern and pour it into the aponic pattern. If you practice asana, you know what that means that in the inhaling pattern we find all the exhaling feeling. And when we're exhaling we find all the inhaling feeling. Mm -hmm. So that we don't let the mind label mm -hmm. inhaling or exhaling. It's just spontaneous felt experience. And then the mind will come in and go, whoa, that was so cool, that was spontaneous felt experience, that must <laughs> be exactly <laughs> And uh, this is really, really good and now I can um, figure it out, okay, that's what that was. Whoa. Really advanced. Maybe you should be taking the intermediate class, <laughs> do a teacher training, and maybe I can actually teach this workshops. Travel around. Better than what I'm doing now. Anything's better than what I'm doing now. Just give up what I'm doing now. So, oh, maybe I'll ask this as a question. Shine. Just everybody happens. Why do I always feel different? <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on like three years later <laughs> finally one day oh like, oh my god what is this god I even married him <laughs> how am I going to undo this one you know I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> Anybody else thoughts? So just to watch a little bit where you can have like a meta story going on about even stillness. Just to watch that. It's really quite fascinating. So that here, even in the midst of our lives, even in the midst of difficulty, to recognize that we can take refuge there, here, 
That's where we take refuge. That's where we enter. What is this? What is this? I find that there's a sense I can get sometimes uh, when you're describing <coughs> being in the present moment, that feeling of, of uh, intimacy that you're describing. But as I'm thinking about it now, I was thinking, I also discover fear in myself, mm-hmm. like when I think of being there, because I immediately have the thought, this is going nowhere, <laughs> right? That, that, and that somehow, in my mind, is, is bad. It's uh-huh. like, that's scary. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. I guess, failure, uh-huh. going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Not that I have an answer as to where mm-hmm. I'm going. Yeah. I'm working all the time to find that answer. Right? Yeah. That's what you're describing. Yeah. So that going nowhere part of being here yes. mm-hmm. yeah. mm. is sometimes, I think, where I get hung up. Yeah. Because I've been raised all my life to be going somewhere. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The failure to go nowhere. Um, yeah, the the um, not going forward, not going backwards, and not being still. No. No landing zone. If you say I'm not going to go forwards anymore, it's like oh, I'll go I'll go backwards then. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, not going backwards. Okay, I'll just be still. Yes. No, 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 no. So, what's actually happening? Not the concept, I am going forwards. I am going backwards. I am going to be still. And, fear may arise. Yes. Fear may arise. Let me read you a little passage. (laughs) (laughs) If you would. (laughs) Therefore, Shariputra, that's you, you're Shariputra, without attainment, bodhisattvas take refuge in prajnaparamita. Prajnaparamita. And live without walls of the mind. Without walls of the mind and thus without fear. So you can see how the notion of going forward becomes a wall of the mind. Right. Because it fixes it fixes the perceptual frame. And you know, it's kind of like when you're in a rush, everyone's going too slow. <laughs> you know? So how is this gonna get me something? Yeah. You know? And we're all geared for attainment, to attain something to get. So here, the heart sutra is striking at that. In the gentlest way. Because it's recognizing that there is fear. That there is fear. But it's also pointing out how there's a relationship between the fear and the walls in the mind. And how to notice that from a place of stillness. Not like oh, I'm scared, I've got to do something, like the strategy. Or noticing it and then turning it in on yourself. Why can't I ever... Is that still the attainment, right? 
why can't I, you know, get this? Yeah. You know? But so opening up to the fear and taking refuge in fear as it's arising. The fear is sacred. Not the story about the fear and not the attainment or non-attainment, but just opening up to this experience of fear. What is this? Not what is this analytical, what is this? What is this? Well, actually, it's uh, <laughs> no, opening up with your belly and with your kidneys and with your pelvis and... Um, <clears throat> And the thought, this is going nowhere, is being, is arising out of that story about being... Well, while you're thinking this is going nowhere, it's going somewhere. Right. Everything's going somewhere. Yeah. Maybe not where you need it to go, but it's all <laughs> flowing. Yeah. The whole world is just liquid. Or I guess nowadays it's stardust blowing around. So let's finish chanting, and then I'll have a couple of announcements to make. <coughs> and Tony, contemplate the meaning of this one. <laughs> Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. Namaste. Namaste.